Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Finance Minister Bill Morneau are fighting. What does that mean? And what are they fighting over? The Huawei CFO is back in court again today, fighting her extradition. And Air Canada is promoting leisure travel to the U.S. for Canadians, despite the warnings against non-essential trips. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Week number 23 of the COVID-19 pandemic. I asked a friend what date was. He said August. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. All right. We certainly know what uh, issues the Prime Minister has been going through uh, for the last uh, couple of weeks, certainly involving the WE charity and, and what has happened there, uh, as well as uh, other things, I guess, throughout uh, his tenure. Uh, now we are hearing a report from Reuters that uh, Justin Trudeau and the finance minister, Bill Morneau, are fighting. There's infighting going on. Now what that means, disagreements, not sure. But it certainly does give you the feeling that uh, Morneau is on the outs, that uh, he's having issues in regard to the bill, uh, in regard to uh, all of the spending that's going on in and around the pandemic. And as we readjust and get ready to uh, to try to maneuver our way out of this pandemic. Uh, we understand the government wants to go full uh, headstrong with climate change uh, uh, activities. And rumor has it, Morneau isn't on that same page. So to talk more about all of this, Tim Powers is with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. And he is also with Abacus Data. And he is with us now. How are you, Tim? Thanks for taking the time. Glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. I'm sure in Hamilton, the tissues have kind of come out for the the, the non CFL season. The least surprising announcement of the day, but it still sucks, Scott. Nonetheless, I know it's uh, it's unfortunate. I guess they were looking for some sort of uh, financial uh, stimulus, and and that wasn't going to happen. So unfortunate uh, for CFL fans, and including us here in the Hammer. So I uh, thought, you know, Bill Morneau could have written a check on the way out. I mean, even $1,000 nice. could have bought a few football, a few Spalding footballs, you know. It would sure. Have- you know, the money he spends on trips, that would probably keep the uh, league afloat for a season, would it not, when you think about it? Anyway. Uh, so did you have any idea that there was a tiff brewing between Trudeau and Morneau? Well, that's been the rumor around here in Ottawa for a couple of weeks, and it obviously blew up last week when the um, the Globe Mail started this whole story about Mark Carney coming back because uh, the PMO, well, Mark Carney coming back, and as a consequence of that, Morneau was in jeopardy because the Prime Minister and his office were mad about Morneau and not telling them about the money. Uh, for the $41,000, they were caught off guard, and this then led to the next iteration of the story about, well, they've had philosophical differences anyway, and more no, uh, more interested, and I hope this is true, in, in protecting you know, the, the money we spend and being wise about it, the Prime Minister's office wanting more intensive spending. Uh, it appears now, Scott, reading all of these different stories with different sources, that there's intense framing going on either side. I would make this bold prediction to you right now. I do not think Bill Morneau will be our finance minister a month from now. 
Uh, again, we talked about the, the rumors surrounding uh, Mark Carney, former Bank of Canada governor, and of course then went to the U.K. Uh, we talked about that last week. Would he have a different view than Morneau, than, uh, than Finance Minister Morneau's? Uh, I think he would have a longer game view than, than Morneau. I, I think the one thing that's changed this week in the, in the, uh, the hamster wheel that is the Os- Ottawa gossip circle is this sense that Carney wouldn't come in right now because I think Carney is smart enough to recognize that if he were brought in, the expectations for him would just be beyond management. Uh, and that what Mark Carney is comfortable doing is doing what he was doing or uh, apparently doing beforehand, providing some informal advice. And if he is going to come in, it would be during uh, the next election campaign, preferably in an Ottawa seat. So w- but back to your point, would he do things differently? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, he 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 certainly um, was uh, an advisor. Well, he's a Bank of Canada governor during the fiscal crisis, uh, which did see a lot of spending at the time because that was encouraged and recognized. Uh, you know, he's a he's a former Goldman Sachs banker. I mean, he might have different perspectives on it: the degree of spending versus the degree of restraint. Um, it would vary, I suspect. Uh, that being said, both are certainly well respected uh, in their fields, uh, other than, you know, you know, of course, perhaps the odd wee scandal or something like this here and there. Um, uh, this is about uh, Morneau wanting Trudeau to rein in the spending and also, from what I understand, alter some of his climate change initiatives. So, um, again, a finance minister is a finance minister. Is it the climate change issue where they're at odds? No. Listen, I think what you're seeing now is the framing up of Bill Morneau by Bill Morneau's fans. And God bless them. That's what they're supposed to do of how Bill was standing strong against, you know, the prime minister's stronger progressive instincts and how that left him in a place where he was alone in the cabinet. And there will be lots of Canadians, me included, uh, who would like to see, see more fiscal restraint, or at least a thought of it, who will say, yeah, good job, Bill Morneau. So that's a bit of a brand exercise. I don't know how much of that is true or not true. Um, Scott, there usually is, there should be a healthy tension between a finance and when it comes to budget making. They should challenge and test each other. Uh, but where the truth actually lies here, uh, we probably will never know that. The only thing that does appear blatantly evident it's Bill Morneau cannot and will not stay at finance. Now, does he step out himself or does a cabinet shuffle come about? Um, no, they've set up a climax. We just don't know how that climax will fully play itself out other than that Bill Morneau will not be the finance minister, as I think, within a month. What 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 does it tell us about uh, uh, the climate change concerns? What is that all revealing? Well, Morneau signed on and knew that was an issue of the prime ministers. Again, hard to know what's real here. You have a, look. The, the, it has been suggested in a series of different articles that the prime minister views, and he's not said this, but his sources have said that you know he he wants to embrace a very progressive agenda, and now is the time to to seize the opportunity to do all of that because we're going through such fundamental change as a consequence of COVID. I believe there's a lot to that. I mean, I, I how how fundamental and significant definitionally the changes, I don't know, but I don't. I would say this: I don't think the government has a, the prime minister and some of his key 
lieutenants, you know, Catherine McKenna, and Jonathan Wilkinson and others have not lost their luster to push climate Canada as far as they can on the climate change front. Uh, do you think that uh, the Prime Minister's office will use the issues surrounding the WE, uh, the WE charity and, and that whole scandal, are they using that to paint him as some, or, or use that perhaps as an excuse to get rid of him when really the underlying reasons are there's tension in regard to No, I, I think it was WE. I think it was WE. I, I think, look, Bill Morneau, but that creates this odd sort of circumstance. So that's why they kind of want him to resign, and they're trying to change the channel a little bit on it being a policy difference. So the story isn't about we, because if the story is about we and Bill Morneau gone for we because he's under his second ethical investigation, how can you be the prime minister who's going through your third and stay, right? So I, I think they want it to be about philosophical differences, that it's better to have this debate and the debate about, oh, you know, progressive versus uh, versus the stand, status quo kind of response. The debate you're having now, whether you and I are having, or the discussion you and I are having now, is a lot better for, for the government than there being one about we. And if Justin Trudeau comes out of this looking like, you know, he was able to move his finance minister on because he was an impediment to a progressive agenda, he'd take that story over Bill Morneau left because of we, why haven't you, Prime Minister? Yeah, exactly. How will this play, though, uh, despite all of that, how will this play if Morneau looks like he's being removed because he's being financially responsible? Some people won't like it. It'll have an impact on the markets. Um, some blue liberals won't like it because they, you know, there are many of them who do have a concern that the the Trudeau government isn't uh, taking the deficit seriously enough, even though they should be given its magnitude of uh, expected magnitude of nearly 350 billion dollars um so in some circles it will not play well it creates an opportunity for conservatives when their new leader is chosen next week to try and attract some of those blue liberals who are worried about um the government's long-term fiscal management plan so the, but trudeau is calculating that he has more progressive voter support to outweigh whatever damage he will be getting or subject to from blue liberals. So is this the time, meaning coming out of a a pandemic, is that the time to hype up uh, the climate change programming? Is that is this the time to change direction? They think it is. Uh, Look, I I, I think it's where I'm from in Newfoundland and Labrador, um, the real concern about the Newfoundland economy, as it is in Alberta, is how do we keep our natural resources economies going at least for another decade or two decades? To because we're we're not ready to transition. They're not ready to transition. Alberta doesn't mean they won't be ready, but if the pace of transition is accelerated because the government believes that's necessary, you're going to have and separation anxiety emerging in greater uh, intensity in those regions. Will this be an election issue whenever that is? Oh, I'm. Uh, well, look, the debate around how quick. Yes, I think there will be an election issue around visions for recovery. And if the conservatives are smart, they'll have one that, yes, does deal with climate change, but also looks at fiscal stewardship and management. The Liberals will have to do that, too. But, yes, this is the beginning of of an election um, chart. 
Where do you where do you think the mindset of Canadians? Where do you think that lies right now? I, look, there right now schools. I'm sure you've had nothing but yeah. school interviews yeah. over the last number of days. Uh, so part of this is the government in pushing forward, getting more and more out. Maybe now where where Canadians are not as concerned with the federal agenda, and they're more focused on kids and their grandkids and their friends who have kids going to school. So. Uh, that is so immediate, and then that fits into recovery and progressive, some of the progressive agenda, more of the progressive agenda that the government wanna, may want to lay out. I don't think there's a huge app. I, I haven't heard a huge appetite for restraint, because what are we hearing on the news every day? Well, we need to spend more money to have uh, more teachers. We need more classroom space. We need uh, HVAC systems so that the air quality is greater. Nobody's saying stop any of that. Even the most ardent conservative governments are saying spend, spend, spend. So creates an opportunity for the prime minister to lay in his grand narrative of saying, well, everybody wants spending anyway, so why don't we just spend to get here and we'll accomplish our, our, our goals. So today, a meeting between the two, Morneau and Trudeau, what do you expect to happen? Maybe Bill Morneau gets the photo op with Justin Trudeau in a headlock, giving him a noogie. Uh, <laughs> that, that aside, I, I don't know, to be honest with you. Um, I'm waiting for the leaking around the meeting. I, I, I kind of, I, I don't know. It's, a, it's an excellent question. They, I, I'm sure if they're caught together, they'll say some nice things about working through it and looking at agendas. Uh, or it, it could be, and you will remember this, uh, Many, many summers ago, uh, Paul Martin was frustrated with John Cretchen. It was during the leadership troubles, and he was musing about leaving. And then all of a sudden, John Cretchen had a cabinet shuffle in the middle of the afternoon, and John Manley was the finance minister. Are we going down that path? That could happen, too. Uh, despite this distraction with, uh, you know, a fight between the two over policy and how much spending and whether what direction you should go regarding climate change, uh, as soon as he steps down, that's kind of boring stuff. Will this not all just circle around immediately to the we scandal? Uh, maybe. It depends how effective the government is at what the we scandal has going against it right now is people's immediate ang- we are having covid anxieties again yeah. right right now and that's yeah. more personal so the we scandal will will you know uh, filter out a little bit um some will try and keep it alive but i think the conservatives and in the and and the proponents of uh continuing the story in the we scandal are going to have to find new legs to it a new cabinet shuffle will then a cabinet shuffle will get news the new finance minister will get news the budget cycle will get news some will write that it, it rightly write that it, it, it is bill Morneau's a casualty of the we scandal so that will continue the story but i think there'll be more tracks of the story uh, that the government will try and generate that talk about a fresh start, a progressive agenda, a commitment to all of that. And we're here to help you, and we know you're anxious right now, and the next three weeks are going to be tough for you. They're going to push hard to go there, I suspect. There, this is certainly not a issue, problem, challenge that is unique to Canada. Every single nation in the world is struggling, I'm sure, with finances that they have spent uh, uh, over the course of the pandemic, and then what the direction is going to be going out. Uh, do you see other countries who are aggressively pursuing the same sort of path that the Prime Minister is? 
Uh, uh, what I see is a lot of countries that are spending a hell of a lot of money um, as well. And in, in it, it's mostly short-sighted thinking. And you ask the difference between Kearney and, and, um, and Morneau. I mean, you know, Mark Kearney is known to, be, you know, to have a long foresight and want generational thinking around politics. Morneau didn't have that luxury, at least in, in the short term. And to answer your question specifically, uh, you know, I read the U.K. papers most days. I look at the U.S. papers. Uh, everything is about the next six months, not the next six years. Um, so Trudeau might be trying to jumpstart the focus on the next six years instead of the next six months. Um, with interest rates being where they are, and I remember after the the last election, uh, you know, the prime minister saying, you know, this is a good time to be in situations like this. Interest rates are extremely low, whether it's infrastructure uh, uh, builds or, or, or build around yep. climate change or such. How much does that play into all of this? How much time? Because you talked about long-term thinking versus short-term thinking. I, is it time for long-term thinking at this point? Well, remember we were told about it when we were told we had a trillion-dollar debt, Scott, to your point about interest rates. Oh, yeah. they're so low. You know, we have a, a great ratio for paying the back. <laughs> Trudeau won. Go back to when he won. In 2015, he won. Uh, on an an agenda in large measure that dealt with spending and key infrastructure and building up our physical and social infrastructure that if if anything, he probably feels more emboldened now um, because people aren't, there there is no politician in the country right now that I can find in the mainstream that is saying now is the time for smart fiscal rectitude. Now is the time to be focusing on paying down the debt. Now is the time uh, to manage the deficits. The, the, even the conservatives are extremely tepid on all of that because nobody knows, and Trudeau's playing off of that, what a so-called second wave is going to cost us. So if there ever were a time, if you're a big spending liberal, to push an agenda, it is probably now. But I was joking with you before that I was thinking about Freedom 85 because we're going to have to pay for this at some point, you, I, our children, our grandchildren. I'm now moving on to Freedom 90 because if the prime minister (laughs) and the government embraces a healthy spending agenda, at some point we all do have to pay for it. It's not just tried conservative rhetoric. It's a reality. Although we don't know exactly when it is going to be, what will be different about the next election than the last well, of course, there'll be a new no, no Andrew Shear to kick around anymore. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think you'll have a new conservative leader. Do, do the have the conservatives learn? That's the first question. Are they going to try and run a Stephen Harper type agenda, which I don't think they can. They can run on elements of it, um, and and the timing of the election. Obviously, it'll be sooner because we have a minority parliament. Is it going to be? Because I think this is where the liberals would like to go and believe they can win on it. A battle of the vision for the, the, the next 20 years. Um, certainly if they're talking to people like Carney and, and Trudeau and all this speculation around progressive agendas is true, that's where they're going to want to go. So maybe we have a bit of a vision election, which we really haven't had, Scott, since 1988 in a free trade election. That could be very different. What about uh, what about you know in, in the, what about the attitude of Canadians of voters in a post COVID nineteen world? Yeah. Are priorities different? Have priorities changed? What played before is that going to play next time? Excellent question. And we could have uh, starting today our first COVID election in Canada because New Brunswick. Yeah, New Brunswick. 
may go to the polls this afternoon. Every indication the Premier Higgs has an announcement to make. I think people will be watching how that plays out. Because New Brunswick's an interesting microcosm of Canada. In this regard, they have a minority government. It's split split a little bit among Anglo and Franco lines, also a bit of urban and rural. The Premier Higgs is riding high because of his management of COVID. That's why he feels confident he can move forward on it. He tried to sign an agreement with all parties, saying there wouldn't be an election uh, until 2022. If he calls it, people will be watching that, and that will be a good example of of what you know a, an election in Canada might look like uh, a year from now or, or sooner. Hmm. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman of Suma Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. The Huawei CFO is back in court today for the release of documents that relate to her arrest. To talk more, uh, more about all of this, Gordon Holden is with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science at the University of Alberta, and is with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you so much. So uh, talk about this court appearance. Uh, this is her team, from what I understand, asking for the release of documents. What more, what more can you tell us about this? Sure. Well, of course, right from the, the moment of the arrest, in fact, prior to that, when the Canadian government was first notified um, of the U.S. extradition request, there was a flurry of memoranda written uh, in the Department of Global Affairs, uh, in CSIS, uh, at the highest level of the Canadian government, analyzing this, summarizing the case, and what would be the likely developments. Uh, the defense team would like to get their hands on these documents and have filed formal requests to do so. Uh, some ha- papers have already been handed over, rather heavily didacted. And the government and government officials have gone uh, to the court, a federal court in Ottawa, pointing out why these things should not be released. It includes a lot of analysis, I understand, of Canada-China relations, uh, Canada-U.S. relations, etc., that are matters of state, and the position of the government of Canada is that these have no bearing on the fraud accusation which Hmong faces and the extradition request itself. Does this have anything to do with uh, the way in which she was detained, any abuse of power at that point? It certainly does. The defense uh, alleges, and again, this is their allegations, I'm not claiming this is the case, but that the way in which she was detained, where the um, she was allowed to be questioned by CBSA, the border border security people, and her cell phones, electronic devices um, seized, that this was contrary uh, to procedures that she should rather have been invest- arrested directly by the RCMP and held by them, as opposed to have a CBSA to have a CBSA intervention. Um, th- this. Uh, discussion will go on today in open court. I believe there will be some closed court sessions today, this week as well. And then the judge will have to determine, probably not until the fall, um, October even, that the, um, w- what are the merits of these various accusations and, and, uh, and claims by the defense. Of course, she has good lawyers. Crown is putting forward good lawyers as well. Um, simple things can get very complicated when you have dueling lawyers of high caliber on complex issues, and that, I think, is what is is before us. So do they have a case here, or is this just them exercising every single right they have? 
Well, I'd say it's it's potentially both. Um, the judge will determine. Uh, I'm not. I haven't read those memoranda. The, term, the judge will determine whether or not their case is valid, whether there has been an abusive process, whether it was a, an effect of what the defense argues as an illegal uh, criminal um, investigation involving agencies should not have been involved, whether the seizure of the phones, etc., was legitimate. That'll be the judge's call. Um, but um, certainly um, she has the right, and her lawyers are exercising that right, to use every possible defense uh, including uh, these long um, claims and investigations in terms of what were the background documents, should these all be available to defense. It's tricky, and I have been involved in cases of my own in the past where um, the courts um, have the right to examine these documents, but that many of these um, pieces of evidence that are brought forward have information in it which would be damaging to Canada's national interests and to our political relations, in this case, with China and with the United States. That'll be the, the test that the judge will have to uh, have to determine or make. Are these really relevant, germane to her defense, or are these really simply a government making confidential internal assessments as to what's in play on, on things apart, quite apart from the more narrow question of her extradition? Uh, and not a verdict on this appearance until October? I think that's quite possible. I mean, it's ultimately the judge's discretion, but it's it's unusual in my view for there to be an immediate reaction. I think if there are these hearings going on open and closed this week, uh, we're already mid-August, I would expect, um, but I don't know for certainty, of course, that we won't have this portion of the uh, argumentation out of the way with a determination until the fall. And we know already that According to the rough schedule, it's been agreed between the court, uh, the Crown, and the defense attorneys that we know that there are, will be hearings scheduled well into next year um, if there isn't any intervention on the part of the Minister of Justice or a dropping of the extradition request by the United States. So we can, I think, confidently believe that uh, we have before us um, six, eight months at least, and I would not be surprised to see full year pass before we have a resolution uh it, it it seems that they're throwing a lot at the fan and hoping that something sticks or there's a, a maybe somebody blinks and there's a mistake made how crucial is it that everything is done perfect at this point well i think if you're facing the quality of of legal assault coming from, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but of a legal yep. examination from the defense, you, it is, it does behoove the, the Crown and government agents to make sure they're following the, the correct steps. Um, I'm not a position to determine whether these allegations about seizure of phones, etc., has real merit or is significant enough to warrant an end to the procedures, but you're, but you're quite right. Uh, with everything being alleged, um, the, correctness of the procedure is critical. The average extradition request goes through pretty swiftly. This is not a typical case. It's much more complicated. There's a lot at stake politically, economically, diplomatically, and with vast resources of legal talent on both sides. Uh, this is a, a titanic struggle. Um, where the judge will come down, um, I, hard to foresee. But I think even on this wrinkle, uh, it will be weeks before we have a determination.
How many more appearances where will there be like this? How many more court appearances will there be like this before we actually get to the extradition hearing itself? Well, I, I would think there would be a couple more um, before we get to the hearing per se, which I anticipate would be spring of next year. Um, beyond that, of course, there's the possibility of um, even likelihood of appeals. I'm not sure the Crown will appeal if the judge dismisses the case. That would be just too tempting and out to this mess for the government, I think. But if she is judged, determined that she should be extradited, there are appeal options available to the defense team, and these could extend all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, those wouldn't necessarily involve actual testimony in court, but it would certainly involve senior levels of, of the court system examining in detail everything that's happened to date. Uh, and so this is, well, this is important stages in a potentially still very long process. So let's jump ahead here, Gordon, and, and just assume that she is extradited, that, you know, whenever this does happen, it, it, she ends up being extradited. Um, more series of, of appeals there. How long would those appeals delay this extradition? Well, if she's ruled that she should be extradited and you had uh, appeals to BCP Supreme Court and to the uh, Supreme Court of Canada, um, that could take a year or two, um, potentially even longer. I'm thinking of the Lai Chang-Shin case in Vancouver, this smuggler who eventually was extradited, that took a decade. I don't think this one necessarily will. But um, if, and of course the U.S., it's an option too, I suppose, that China could kind of deal with the United States in some fashion, um, plea to a um, an agreed settlement um, with U.S. authorities whereupon dropping extradition requests would be part of that. So there's, there's things that we can't foresee that could well happen, that could shorten or short-circuit the process. Um, but if it's U.S. sticks to its guns, if uh, the she's judged that she should, if it's determined that she should be extradited and the full appeal process was to play out, that's where we would be looking at years, uh, not months. What would that do for Canada-China relations? How would that set, how would that change this whole world discussion? Well, I think we're, it would mean more of the same, um, but it might have some other effects. By, by that I mean there's no, there can be no full normalization of the Canada-China relationship until this case is out of the way, for, partly for the simple reason that China holds the two Michaels, who have, by my reckoning, committed no crime and simply happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So that normalization is put on hold as long as this, runs out. But over time, I think it's also damaging both significantly, both Canadians' view of China and potentially Chinese views, the views of Canadians of China and the views of Chinese vis-a-vis Canada. So there is a reputational damage in both directions that increases potentially over time. From my understanding, most Chinese still, I'm not talking about the government entirely here, but most Chinese have a general, generally positive view of Canada. That could shift. Um, and in the case of Canadians' view of China, the last poll I saw, it was an Anos poll, put yeah. positive views of China at about 14%. Uh, 
So that's super low. And I can't, I don't think it can actually go that much lower. So we're, and there isn't, there is a price to be paid by the duration of these proceedings and the fact that it, apparently nothing can be done quickly. Everything has to take uh, months and years. But that's the nature of our judicial process, as the Chinese are discovering to their dismay. Gordon Holden has been with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science at the University of Alberta. Uh, the Huawei CFO back in court again today trying to get documents released uh, relating to her arrest. Gordon, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. The same to you and your listeners. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Air Canada is now promoting leisure travel to the United States for Canadians, despite the warnings that, uh, you know, there shouldn't be anything other than non-essential travel. And then let's not forget when you get back, you got to quarantine for 14 days. Marvin Ryder is with us again. Marvin, thank you for the time. Hope you're no doing well. Glad to be with you. So I'm it, fine. We talked about this uh, a little earlier on. Are, are you surprised again? You you, you talked about the uh, the land borders uh, being closed to non-essential, but pretty much you can fly in and out without an issue. Is that accurate? Well, you're right. So this is the confusing thing. Uh, most of us sort of non-business people, if you will, hear the government say the border is closed with the United States for non-essential travel now until September 21st. So we assume that means all kinds of travel. But what they're really talking about is land travel. So if I drive down to Fort Erie and try to cross into the United States, I'm going to be grilled about what's the purpose of the trip. And if I don't have a really good argument for it, I'm going to be turned away. However, Our borders are not closed if I come in by boat or by plane. Now, um, we are discouraged. Government policy discourages us. But if we have to travel or want to travel, you can still do that. And that goes both ways. I can leave Canada and fly in the United States, and I won't be challenged about my trip in the United States. And then if I get on the plane in the United States, come to Canada, I won't be challenged. And this, to me, is a funny loophole. Now, let's put myself in the role of Air Canada. I sell seats on planes. One option would be for me to shut down my service, but clearly uh, an airline that doesn't fly their planes and tries to park them, that's a great way to become absolutely bankrupt. So Air Canada has tried to find a way to keep itself moving, keep planes in the air. Uh, You'll recall that initially the planes were barely half full because they blocked off the center seats and, you know, spread people around a plane. Uh, They stopped doing that in early July. They started doing more of filling the plane completely. And and so they're selling seats. Now, uh, one other little wrinkle of this, too, is the seat sale that's currently going on is not just for flying tomorrow or the day after, but it actually extends well into 2021. And, and again, if you think about it, many people who, who typically are snowbirds or like to vacation someplace warm during the winter, you actually book that travel now. In fact, the old story is if you don't book quickly, you're not going to be able to get away to some sun destination in the winter. So by that point, the disease may be in a different place. I just think Air Canada is in a very difficult spot. It's not doing anything that contravenes our laws. If you want them to stop doing this, then let's get the government to change its policy. So what is safer about air travel crossing a border than via land in a car? Yeah, the theory is the number of stops you make. So if I was going to drive from Toronto to Los Angeles, that would take me three or four days. I'd be stopping at different restaurants, different gas stations, maybe a hotel or two along the way. 
lots and lots and lots and lots of points of contact. If I get on a plane, although I am contacting the people who are on the plane, the air in the plane is turned over so frequently, it's run through a HEPA filter, and HEPA filters remove most bacteria. We actually have heard very little about people getting infected while on a plane. So in other words, the very first case was a, uh, of COVID in Canada was a Canadian couple who had been in Wuhan, China. When they got on the plane in Wuhan, the husband wasn't feeling very well. They flew to Toronto. They got off. He tried to isolate for a day or two. Eventually, he checks into the hospital. So does his wife. They were case number one and two of COVID in Canada. But uh, tracing on the plane found that even though he was positive for the virus, nobody sitting around him picked it up. So the air on the plane is relatively clean. It's not the flight that's the problem. It is what you do before you get on the flight and what you do getting off the flight. So all those interactions getting to the airport and then when you come back, are you properly quarantining yourself? And that was at least the problem back in March, February and March, that people would come back from some hot spots we would say, now you must go quarantine for two weeks. And they say, great, I'm just going to stop at the grocery store on the way home and stock up. No, no, no. When we say quarantine, that means you're now persona non grata. And that's the concern about people flying. It's not so much if they go to the United States and get sick there, that's their problem. But if they bring the disease back, are they properly quarantining? And we don't really have any mandatory quarantine rules, meaning you go to a facility and we watch you. It's done mostly on trust. So is Air Canada reminding their passengers that when they do return that they have to uh, quarantine for 14 days, or is that not their responsibilities? That's the border crossing. Well, I think both are doing it. I, you know, I'm sure Air Canada is distributing literature. I mean, after all, when you board the plane, you're still wearing a mask. You have your temperature taken. Uh, the, the staff there are, are gloved, and they're wearing face shields. There is no food service on the planes. There is no drink service on the planes. You can bring something with you, but they're not going to distribute it to you. So it's not exactly flying as usual before. I'm sure they're reminding you, but ultimately it is Canadian Border Services because when I come back from the States, I have to go through customs. That's what we always like to say, go through customs, and they have to be reminded there as well. So I, I, I get it. I saw some people who said what Air Canada is doing is unethical. Gosh, I don't think it's unethical. It's certainly not illegal. And it's partly because the government has sent out this mixed message. We don't want you driving into the United States, but we're still letting you fly. It's hard to believe that one day, uh, at one time, people actually smoked on airplanes. I find that really hard to believe, especially when we're talking about HEPA filters and air quality. Well, um, what about this? No, let me tell you a quick story. Many years ago, yeah. I flew to from Toronto to Trinidad. I was doing work with the World Bank. Uh, I was flying business class. Ooh, very sexy business class. Two rows in business class. The row I was sitting in, the first row was non-smoking. The row behind me was smoking. And I had a colleague who was flying as well. He liked to smoke. He sat in the second row and purposely blew smoke all over me sitting one row ahead of him. Oh, no. Hard to believe that was, and that was within my lifetime 25, 30 yeah, years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what about, where does this leave the snowbird industry in the fall? I mean, soon as we get towards Christmas and, you know, November, October, November, December, right. uh, snowbirds are thinking about heading back down. What does that do to that business? Right. 
Well, a couple of things here. First, clearly, uh, we, we can't paint COVID with one brush universally, meaning here in, in Canada, we know there are pockets of our country which have been relatively COVID-free and for a long period of time, and others that are not. We know that because of the phased-in approach here in Ontario. Hamilton, Toronto came in later than, say, uh, an area like Sudbury. So I think if I'm a snowbird, Let's say I have a house in, in Arizona or an apartment in, in Florida, a condo in Florida. I'm paying attention to the local conditions and saying, if I get there, is it safe? And there would be pockets of the United States which are relatively COVID-free. So then the question comes, well, then how do I get from here to there, and am I safe on that journey? And that's where, again, people would take a, take a look and say, well, if I fly and I'm flying from Toronto, which is relatively COVID-free, to an airport, which is also relatively COVID-free, I'm probably good. But if I have to fly through areas that are not COVID-free, am I going to delay and wait? I am sure this is going to be up to each individual person. Add into the fact age, many snowbird people are of an older age, therefore they're more at risk. Add in the other comorbidity factors, maybe I have a lung condition or a heart condition, and it's going to be all over the map. Some will go, some will wait. Um, and the hope, of course, again, for everybody in the tourism industry is that this goes away. But the fear, of course, is that the second wave comes and we're stuck with this for another two or three years. What about insurance to go down there? I mean, I, from what I understand, a lot of insurance companies just simply will not provide the normal insurance that they would for those to, to cover those who head right. down. So that, again, is going to be on an individual basis. I happen to work with an employer who, when I retire, still gives me some out-of-province and out-of-country health care insurance. Many people don't have that, and it's kind of crazy if you're going to go for three, four, five months to travel someplace, whether it's the United States or someplace else without health insurance, you'd have to contact them. And their attitudes are also changing over time as the disease moves. I think the situation, say, in April of this year has changed somewhat now that we are in August. And if the numbers go in the right direction, it may change again. So it's a very... um, it, you know, it moves all over the map here on this. It's certainly not stable, and everyone's going to have to look at it at that time. Uh, Florida, obviously, as you said, Arizona, too, another hot spot for Canadians. Right. Um, both those places have been hot spots for COVID-19 over the course of, of this pandemic. How is this going to affect tourism in those states? Oh, hugely so. In fact, Scott, here's another personal thing. Normally at this time of the year, if we were chatting, I'd be speaking to you from California. I typically mm-hmm. visit the California desert in August. I'm not there. It's not because I couldn't fly there. I could get a flight there, and I could rent a car. I could even get a hotel, but I don't want to go to an area that has such a hot spot uh, for COVID-19. So I'm staying away. Uh, I also travel there in February, and I don't know at this point whether I'll be able to do that. So absolutely for certain, travelers are, are taking a look at this. Now, mind you, uh, if many people who don't vacation in the southern United States may might think of Mexico, they might think of the Caribbean. Mexico doesn't look that much better, but parts of the Caribbean don't look that bad. These are questions as we head into that tourism season. When do you think we'll know? When do you think people will be able to make that decision? Because here we are now, August. Yeah. Uh, it's looking a little iffy. Uh, wh- wh- where? Uh, what's the deadline? What's the last point where you think this? The, you know, yeah. it's over. It's done for the season. 
Yeah, well, I've got two different answers for you. Clearly, when we look at other parts of the world where we don't live, we often base our decision on how the disease is doing locally. We know that locally, COVID has all been going in the right direction, but looming ahead of us in roughly three weeks, is this question about going back to school, elementary and secondary students. And there are lots of people out there that I have spoken to who, these are just ordinary citizens who are saying, who are very worried that when they go back mm-hmm. to school, boy, there's going to be a real explosion of COVID. And if that happens, just, just in three weeks, four weeks, you can just write off the rest of the tourism season. However, if the kids go back to school and it looks just like the last three phases of our opening, in other words, each time we've opened, we held our breath and nothing really bad happened. If we can open the schools and nothing really bad seems to happen, then I think there is some glimmer of hope if, and that's when you go to the other end of the equation, if the United States can get their act together. My fear is if I watch Donald Trump who still does not seem to be taking this as seriously as I think he should be, certainly not as seriously as politicians in Canada, it may have to wait to a presidential election, and then if and only if there's a change in president. So uh, it could very well be by the time we get to the end of October, the whole tourism season for 2021 could be a write-off. And, you know, like you said, whether you can get in from air or land or what have you, uh, again, having knowing that the U.S.-Canadian border is closed until, say, September 21st, that's obviously got to make people, that, that's got to be a gauge for a lot of people. If the border's right. closed, I'm not going. Well, again, in fairness, many snowbirds don't fly south. Yeah. They drive south because they need their car for transportation. America, again, is a country of sprawl. No two things are very close together. You can't really walk from your house to a store, so you need a car. That's why most people drive. And if I can't get across the border, I'm not going to do it. So, you know, it's looking bad at the moment. I, I would predict bad things for tourism at the moment. But it's just we still are watching this disease evolve I have to say, I love the numbers I'm seeing in Canada, and I give us all great kudos for the abundance of care that we've taken. However, uh, as we start looking to the fall, we're all holding our breath about a potential second wave or some, some, some I don't know, some massive surge of COVID, uh, and we don't know. And then, last thing quickly, uh, a vaccine. Will that make a difference? It might, but I don't think there's going to be a, a quality vaccine in 2020. I think that'll happen as early as 2021. And even then, we have no mandatory vaccination rules. So it's not... It's not the silver bullet here either. We, we've never in our history required people to be vaccinated against anything. And if you've got the anti-maskers, guess what? You've got anti-vaxxers. I don't think that's the silver bullet either. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Glad to be with you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.